Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Welcome to Talking Feds, a roundtable that brings together prominent figures from government law and journalism for a dynamic discussion of the most important topics of the day. I'm Harry Littman. We watched it approach like a comet for months, but when the federal indictment of Donald Trump suddenly came down Thursday afternoon, it caught everyone a bit off guard. The indictment, unsealed on Friday, accused Trump of 37 counts of espionage, obstruction, and conspiracy, naming as his co-conspirator his loyal-to-the-last gopher valet, Walt Nauta, who schemed with Trump to hide Trump's large cache of classified documents from the FBI and Trump's own lawyer, Evan Corcoran. In an unsettling plot twist, the case appears to have been assigned to none other than Judge Eileen Cannon, who mangled the law and did cartwheels to help Trump out after the search warrant earlier this year. If so, the DOJ's first hard decision will be whether to move to recuse her. The indictment itself is a well-crafted narrative that not only presents the facts lucidly, but wraps them up in overarching themes. Trump comes off as a spoiled eight-year-old clinging to his classified toys and perfectly indifferent to the public interest. Worse, the indictment brings home the grave threat of Trump's cavalier conduct to the national interest and our intelligence personnel around the world, a point special counsel Jack Smith emphasized in his brief press conference introducing the charges. On the topic of infantile government, This week, the MAGA hardline contingent in the House staged a protest vote and effectively shut down any consideration of legislation in the House, in apparent reprisal for what they view as Speaker McCarthy's bungling of the debt crisis negotiations. As Matt Goetz, thumping his chest, wrote, House leadership couldn't hold the line, now we hold the floor. To assess where we've been, where we are, and where we are going, after one of the biggest weeks in the history of the United States' legal and political life. We welcome three of the people who have focused extensively on Donald Trump's toxic effects on our government and the rule of law. And they are. Ali Vitale, returning to Talking Feds, is the Capitol Hill correspondent for NBC News, where she has covered national politics for eight years. She's worked on every major election from the campaign trail since 2016. Her first book, Electable, Why America Hasn't Put a Woman in the White House, yet, came out last year. Ali, thanks very much for returning. Absolutely. Happy to be back. Hugo Lowell, a political investigations reporter in the Washington Bureau of The Guardian, covering Donald Trump and the Justice Department. He broke several stories concerning the January 6th committee investigation and is more than following suit of late with a string of scoops in the Trump federal cases. He regularly appears as a political analyst on MSNBC, but this is his first time on Talking Feds. Hugo, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks. Happy to be here. And also a returning guest, and I'm always honored to introduce her, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren. 
She has served in the House since 1995 and currently represents California's 18th District. She is a member of the House Judiciary Committee and ranking member of the House Science, Space, and Technology Committee. As everyone knows, she also served on the January 6th Committee and played a prominent role in the committee's public hearings. Prior to her time in Congress, Representative Lofgren practiced and taught immigration law. Thank you so much, Congresswoman, for joining us today. Sure. All right. So, Hugo, you actually were on the scene in the Miami courthouse the last few days. Did you, from the vibrations on the ground, have a real sense of what was about to happen? I don't think anyone anticipated the indictment coming when it did. I think there are a lot of signs that the grand jury activity was wrapping up, but there wasn't anything particular that stood out. To me, that suggested that indictment was going to come Thursday night. You know, on Wednesday, when Taylor Budowich, Trump's former spokesperson and actually a pretty senior advisor now over at the PAC, went in to testify, it was pretty quiet. It was a handful of reporters, a couple of people who've been covering this investigation. He went in in the morning, came out. I got some tips that there might be another witness going in, but we didn't see another witness going in. And then on Thursday, the only person we saw walking in in the courthouse was David Harback, one of Jack Smith's top prosecutors in this case, who has been primarily handling the obstruction side of the investigation. And then shortly afterwards, he walked out and we didn't see anything else. As we later learned, it was that afternoon that Harback walked to the clerk's office and dropped off the indictment that the grand jury had voted on. But I think it was notable how little fanfare there was in the way that this indictment was presented and the special counsel's team just seemed to get on with it. Got it. I mean, they have shown really top drawer professionalism all the way through. So we taped this midday Friday. In fact, as Jack Smith is speaking, explaining the indictment, stressing the due process and national security concerns, we've all had a chance to give a very quick look at the indictment. I just wanted to serve it up to all of us, you know, if you have any kind of takeaway reactions to the not seven count, but 39 count, 44 page uh, indictment that has just been unsealed for the public. I actually think the thing I was the most struck by, it made me think about when James Comey said, Lordy, I hope there are tapes. There are tapes. There is an audio recording that they use here where he is talking to a writer and a publisher and some other folks saying, I think it literally says, this is still a secret. And he makes reference to the fact that when he was president, he could have declassified these documents that he is showing to people who presumably do not have security clearances that can see this stuff. And he says, but now I can't. So that really there in and of itself is only one of the instances that they point to in this. But that is really shocking and damning from the perspective of if you watch the way the Justice Department is bringing this, you knew it had to be buttoned up tight. You knew they needed to have some real compelling stuff. And I think there are questions about how you can hammer home to a jury just how significant some of these documents are, military and national security in nature, You can't just show these to a jury, but you do have to hammer that home. But I think hearing him on tape is going to be something that in the same way that it makes the Georgia case kind of a class of its own. And it was something that we heard during January 6th. The way that you can lend his voice to it is something that makes it a lot more difficult to separate this as just politics because he's there. He's on tape. 
My reaction, I actually learned about the indictment as I was flying to California from DC. And first I felt kind of sad, honestly. I'm not suggesting that this is not necessary. I mean, if someone appears to have committed a serious offense, something needs to be done about it. But that the country should be at this juncture is really a sad thing, that someone who millions of Americans trusted to be their president and the commander in chief would engage in conduct that was so dangerous to our country. It's it's just depressing. So that was my first reaction, honestly. I do think it's important that this be done in a very orderly way, and I have a high level of confidence that it will be. What struck me looking at the indictment, honestly, was the pictures of the careless treatment of these documents. Stacked up in a ballroom, dumped over with the classified material spilled on the floor. I mean, we know that Mar-a-Lago is open to the world. You'd, all you have to do is pay money and you can go in. We're not doing background checks on the people that are working there or background checks on the people who are going to a wedding. All this material, I mean, if you don't think that foreign adversaries are sending their agents in there, you're you're very naive. Clearly, this was open to the world, and we would be naive to think that our adversaries didn't take advantage of this. Probably a lot of this information is in the hands of those who would do us harm. To the congressman's point, actually, about the spillage of classifieds, in the indictment, prosecutors actually lay out an instance in which one of the boxes toppled over and all these classifieds spilled out. And one of the documents that spilled out was intelligence related to the Five Eyes, the intelligence sharing arrangement. And Walt Nauda, the valet, took a photo of the spill that included the contents of the classified document and sent them to another employee. And so separate to the indictment just for a minute, I think the careless manner in which these boxes and these documents were being handled clearly posed a threat to national security that I think the indictment really hinges on. And then as for the actual evidence itself, this is as strong as an indictment, I think, as you can get in terms of the national defense information element of this, because Section 793E that is being charged here mentions both retention and dissemination. And prosecutors here aren't charging dissemination, but it is much stronger to say, you know, Trump was describing the, the contents of these documents to other people when you're making the more straightforward retention charge. And the fact that they have both the audio recording, to what uh, Ali was saying, and the fact that they have one of Trump's own employees confessing that Trump was showing him national defense information, I think is really significant. Yeah, you know, I read it in the first instance as a prosecutor. So let me just chime in a few points. First, the difference. We had first thought seven counts. In fact, it's some 39 or whatever. The difference is that they charged just that point, the espionage as to some several dozen documents. Second, the incredible Trumpian megalomania. There's no new sort of 
chapters here. The narrative arc is what we thought it would be, but the details. And I, I was drawn specifically to a paragraph and the things he said just when the subpoena was dropped, which are like Al Capone stuff and worse. I don't want anybody looking through my boxes. I don't want you looking through my boxes. And maybe it would be better if we just told them we don't have anything here. Isn't it better if there are no documents? That's stunning stuff. And I'll just say, uh, finally, as a sort of uh, evidence and prosecutor nerd, that's coming in. There would be some doubt about it generally, but if it comes out of his mouth and Corcoran said that's what he says, then the rules of evidence permit it to come in. Hugo, you followed it very closely. When the indictment was unsealed, were there any surprises for you? I think there wasn't any surprises in terms of the narrative arc. I think it was a very clean indictment, and that stood out. I think there was two very clear channels. One was the obstruction, and one was violations of the Espionage Act. And out of all of the documents that prosecutors could have chosen in this investigation, they chose not really documents, but two moments that put Trump squarely in the middle of discussing what is clearly material related to the national security of the United States. and used his own words and his own characterizations to hang an Espionage Act charge around his neck. And then with the obstruction, again, the same sort of deal where Evan Corcoran's notes that basically describe what Trump was saying and the kinds of things that he was saying end up as the roadmap for people to follow through uh, and see how Trump, at every step of the way, took material steps to obstruct the return of documents. And I think the fact that it was so clearly laid out is a big plus for the special counsel. And typically, you know, from indictments that I've seen that have been successful and have been sustained on conviction, the kinds of indictments that work are things that are very straightforward and very easily explained. Yeah, that's going to be a big challenge to keep it simple, but their details are so strong. And I think the two star witnesses here are going to be the ones whom Trump thought he could just talk uncensored to his complete loyal uh, gopher, Walt, and then Corcoran, protected by attorney-client privilege. But of course, it was pierced. Let me ask you, do you have any reporting or intel as to whether this is the only Mar-a-Lago case? Does there remain a chance that they will bring some kind of freestanding case having to do with the initial absconding with of the documents in the District of Columbia? I don't have any reporting on that. I think, you know, I've spoken to several people in the National Security Division in the last couple of days. And the general sense that I've gotten is the evidence that the special counsel got in the grand jury in D.C. before it moved to Florida was that a lot of the documents in his possession may well have ended up at Mar-a-Lago uh, when he was still president. And so the unlawful retention might not have really been at issue at Mar-a-Lago because of the initial taking of the documents to his resort was when he was still president. But I just want to come back to this point you raised just now, which was, you know, there are two real key witnesses here, Walt Nauda, the valet, and Evan Corcoran. And Walt's got a real decision to make now because he was offered a cooperation agreement with prosecutors late last year. They said, look, we have you giving contradictory testimony to us, and you are at risk of being indicted on a false statements charge. And now he's been indicted. 
And if he doesn't want to be roped in as a co-conspirator in an obstruction conspiracy, then the really smart thing for what to do is to start cooperating and to provide testimony against Trump, even at this late stage, to see if it would maybe reduce his exposure down the road. As for Evan Corcoran, the obstruction in the indictment didn't read like himself had any exposure or that there might be exposure down the road. But again, I think Evan's own words, as he recounted in his notes, coming back to haunt Trump is a really significant issue for him. Yeah, they seemed almost to make a point of painting him as an innocent victim. And I I totally agree with what you say about Walt. And, you know, this is part of the analogy, the really apt analogy to organized crime. You know, it it hurts Sammy the Bull, too. But if he's not going to do serious time, he's going to have to sit there and fess up. And he's already done it a little. We already know that he lied. So we were all pretty struck in the last week at the public revelation of the dramatic shift in the center of gravity of the case down to the Southern District of Florida. Do you have any knowledge or surmises about when that happened, at whose instance it happened? It did seem like the department maybe made a a strategic decision toward the end of the whole investigation. Any idea what transpired there? It actually really does seem like a strategic decision Uh, If you think about the last week that the Washington grand jury heard evidence, it was around the first week of May. I learned this week that the Florida grand jury was impaneled around the same time, if not immediately afterwards. It was like within days of each other. And that was interesting because when Taylor Budowicz testified on Wednesday to the Florida grand jury, that was actually a rescheduled appearance. He was supposed to testify, from what I understand, in the second or third week of May. And there may well have been multiple witnesses that testified when no one knew that the Florida grand jury had been impaneled. And that was a real blind spot, not just for the reporting purposes, but also to Trump world. And the fact that no one around Trump knew about the Florida grand jury, and they only learned about it when it became public in news reports, I think underscores how careful they were with the witnesses that went in, first of all, because you know if it's a Trump world witness, they will go back to Boris Epstein, they will go back to the rest of the Trump legal team and, and talk about where they had to testify. And I think it also underscores how quietly and professionally they did it, because there are so many reporters covering this beat now to pull something like that off, I think is actually pretty extraordinary. So we get the news that the famous, infamous Judge Eileen Cannon may have gotten this case. What the heck is that? And how will it impact public acceptance of the whole proceedings? Well, I I will say I don't want to be too vitriolic, but I think her prior behavior that earned her a rebuke from the most conservative circuit court in the nation does undercut her confidence and just her competency. My understanding is she had never really tried any cases prior to her appointment. And putting ideology aside, she's not capable. And so that's a problem. And we may end up with motions mid-trial if she makes grievous errors. In the end, I've read the indictment. They've outlined the evidence 
and a jury is going to decide this, not her. And it is very difficult, having read the indictment, I mean, it's very damning. I think he is in big, big trouble. So the indictment is devastating and adds new details, especially around the time of the response to the subpoena. Nevertheless, the Republican reaction, you know, they just fell into line. Steve Scalise, the number two House Republican, said, let's be clear what's happening. Joe Biden is weaponizing his Department of Justice against his own political rival. Now, you know, that's as against an indictment that is really incendiary and kind of stunning. Were you surprised at that kind of knee-jerk and very dogmatic reaction or and can we expect that all the way through no matter what the evidence reveals yes yeah and that's what they're going to continue to do i think it's interesting all those comments were made before they had a chance to look at the indictment for sure right i don't think that's going to change their view if he shot somebody in cold blood on tv they would say the same thing they are with this guy no matter what he does and so I think your average American who's going to serve on a jury is going to look at the facts and the law and reach a conclusion. That's almost always what people who serve on juries do. I guess the real question in my mind is whether normal Republican voters faced with a decision by a jury are going to be persuaded by rhetoric or by a decision. You know, in a way, this judge who was really incompetent, but obviously biased towards the president. If there is a conviction in her court, obviously he did it. So there's a presumption of innocence for every defendant. I'll say that. But the indictment is um, very, very damning. I do think it's been striking to me in watching the Republican response It does often feel this way around Congress, like the Senate is living on Earth A and the House is living on Earth B for Republicans. So immediately when we saw the indictment come out, you had almost every member of House Republican leadership immediately coming out and calling this Biden's weaponization of the DOJ, saying that it's political, trying to point the finger at Hunter Biden instead, and just equivocating. I will note Not many of them, and we didn't even see this after the indictment was unsealed, but because most of these statements came out before that, but not many of them are engaging on the substance here. No one's saying Trump definitely declassified this stuff or Trump definitely is innocent. They're saying that there's a presumption of innocence because, of course, this is America and there is. But I think that's notable. And it strikes me that it's the same kind of reaction they had after he was found liable for sexual abuse. They weren't saying he didn't do it. They also weren't saying he didn't pay off the porn star. They were saying that it's just political because he's running for office. And I remember a year ago before he announced his reelection, when we were doing the January 6th hearings, Congresswoman, and I was standing outside that hearing room for the whole summer and fall, there was a a, a widely known conversation that, that sources within the Republican apparatus were having, which was it made sense for Trump to announce his candidacy early because it made everything that was coming down the pike legally political for him innately. Now, on the Senate side of this building, you're at least watching Republican leadership be silent. I don't know that that's Romney. something that you can. Yeah. Well, Romney, certainly, yes, saying that Trump brought this on himself. But right. leaders in the party on the Senate side being silent. I don't know that that's us saying there's a badge of courage there, but certainly it's a difference and a contrast to the fact that they're not outright defending him. 
Yeah, I spoke to several members of Trump's uh, legal team and people in the inner circle right after the indictment came down. And they are very, very focused on getting Congress to do their dirty work for them, right? They are trying to find any way to delay this trial through as close to the election as possible, because they know that's where the Department of Justice feels queasy. They don't like running um, kind of legal action around the time of the election. And so Trump wants to use Congress and his allies on Capitol Hill to effectuate that as much as he can. And some of the things I'm hearing is stuff like, you know, maybe we could subpoena people at the department. Maybe we could subpoena people in the special counsel's office to provide testimony about the investigation before Congress, knowing that that is exactly the sort of thing the department will push back on, knowing that is exactly the sort of thing that department might even litigate if Republicans on the Hill try to hold them in contempt. I think Trump is very, very effective at using his allies to delay things. You know, we saw that with the special mass litigation that he did. I mean, the special mass litigation over the documents seized from Mar-a-Lago resulted in a months-long delay and an injunction against the Justice Department from using the materials in the investigation. And this is the same playbook that he has deployed time and again, and I think we should expect the same in this case as well. Let's talk a little bit about this politically. Does it matter at all then? We saw that after the New York indictment, his standing in the polls has only increases. He's put more distance between him and DeSantis, who, by the way, was one of the people who came out. You know it had to kill him and say this is a terrible event. But this is much more serious charges. They are from the federal government. The evidence is very strong. They go straight to the national defense. They include a couple instances of literally disseminating classified information, showing it to others. In terms of the broad public reaction, of course, Steve Scalise wrote that talking point in advance. But in terms of broader political standing, which was unmoved by New York DA, is this kind of charge and the source of it more or less the same deal, would you say? I don't know. I mean, I've been working all morning and haven't had a chance to look at any of the news coverage, honestly. Most particularly, how is Fox News covering this? You know, that's how uh, some people get their information, so-called information. And so that will be a key component of what the Republican voters think. And I was mindful that they didn't cover our first January 6th hearing and their ratings tanked as a consequence. So they did cover our afternoon hearings after that, so as not to conflict with Carlson and Hannity. I do think the people who watched, not everyone, did actually receive some information that was news to them. And that does have an impact on people. You know, though, at some point, isn't it also on Republican politicians themselves to police the people within their own party? On in what sense? Just like for civics lessonry or on? Yeah, I would say the civics piece of it was embodied by people like Kinzinger and Cheney on the January 6th committee. That's just informing people of the truth. But then there's also the idea of there are actively people running in a primary against this man for president of the United States. After the first indictment, none of their non-responses, which is to say they all flooded to support him, were surprising because the Bragg case was the quote unquote weakest of the things that were being brought against Trump. 
Now we're at the second indictment, which is still pretty stunning to say, but it's the second indictment of the former president who wants to be president again. And still we're not seeing people within his own party rebuke him on this. The closest that they'll get is saying we have to push past the drama and distraction. That's not how you say we are a nation of law and order. Maybe after the third indictment or the fourth indictment, and I'm saying third because we know we've got DOJ still looking into the January 6th stuff. We've got in Georgia, them looking into the obstruction stuff in 2020. Like there are going to be more indictments. It's still bad to be indicted in this country. It is. Even though politically it's worked for him, it's still bad to be indicted. Not to mention convicted. Here's the problem. They have a president, ex-president Trump, when he was president, he lied to the public and he stirred people up, right? And yeah. the Republicans in the House were right with him, lying to people and stirring people up and making sure that they were in a constant state of rage, right? That this was so unfair and it was political and et cetera, et cetera. Now they're afraid of that electorate. They stirred him up and they no longer are in control of the truth. Yeah. And so- if they were to say, well, this indictment looks very damning, that enraged electorate would punish them, right? So yeah. they are now the captive of their enraged electorate. It's a very fortunate and dangerous situation. It's a great point. It's like, you know, Frankenstein's monster. The obvious strategy that Trump has is to make Garland and even Biden the architect of this decision, which they plainly weren't. They found out about it, did the White House, through the press reports, and that was very much by design. But everything Trump has socially, whatever you'd call it, it's not tweet, but socially uh, <laughs> bloviated, is that the formal term, Allie? You know, sticks <laughs> Biden in there. We saw that the Manhattan indictment didn't hurt Trump and in some ways helped him within the Republicans. Is there a worry that there's going to be a negative political impact on Biden's reelection campaign from this? Does anyone see that as a tangible concern? I don't know if that will be the case or not. And I can guarantee you that that was not one of the factors that the special prosecutor weighed. That's not his job. His job is right. to enforce the law. A lot of what Trump does in some of his Republican cohorts in the House is project. When Trump was president, he interfered with the Justice Department and tried to use the Justice Department politically to go after his enemies. And so he apparently assumes everyone does that. That is not the norm. George Bush didn't do that. George W. Bush didn't do that. Clinton didn't do that. Presidents don't do that other than Nixon. So maybe the American public thinks that's the way it works. Some of us have to do some explaining. Biden didn't indict him. A grand jury indicted him. And they indicted him based on evidence. And then there will be a trial based on evidence and the law. The one thing I hope, and really I think it's critical, that this trial be held promptly. If we put this off for, you know, years, that would really be terribly irresponsible. Obviously, we need to give the defense adequate time to prepare. But if it isn't held, at least by the end of this year, I think that would be unfair to the American public. To me, that's the main concern about Judge Cannon. 
And we'll have an immediate instance because uh, two lawyers quit, though he says he fired them today. So I predict the first thing you're going to hear is, oh, judge, the new person who's coming in needs you know months to get up to speed. If we're talking about the political implications of that, a speedy trial, and we know that nothing is speedy when it comes to the legal system, right. we're probably going to have the Iowa caucuses at some point in January, earlier than we typically have them. That means that you're going to have people who have voted in Iowa, in New Hampshire, maybe even in Nevada and South Carolina. Trump could have wrapped up the nomination if this takes too long. You could end up with him as not just a candidate, but the candidate on the Republican side, not the guy who is likely to be the nominee, but the actual nominee by the time he's actually on trial. That's a real reality here. And we don't know what any of this looks like politically, but we certainly don't know what that looks like politically. If he gets convicted, and obviously we, you know, we can't assume that, what is the sentence? And I asked my staff to take a look at some of the recent cases having to do with similar issues, and they go all the way from General Petraeus, who got two years probation and a fine in 2015, up to some who got nine, ten years in prison. So I don't know what would be appropriate. But if you follow the, other than Petraeus and one other, people who did what has been alleged here, all were sent to prison. Let me speak to that because it's a real problem now. We've thought about this all the way through as if maybe there's some Solomonic result where he doesn't really go to jail, but he's off the, you know, the cancer is removed from the body politic. But the point you made before, Congresswoman, about Smith having assumed the reins and not Garland and not Biden, the last chance that they really had to work out some kind of low or even non-custodial sentence was last Monday. And now that they're doing it by the book, any other case, I do not see how the DOJ cannot ask for a lot of time. And I do not see how a judge can let him completely go free, even if that seems very jarring. I think the pretrial schedule will be very interesting because typically in these cases, you know, we've seen about 12 to 14 months of pretrial conference. And that is if everything just goes to plan, right? So under a regular pretrial conference, you might expect to go to trial in June 2024. But then we're also thinking about someone like Judge Cannon. And I would expect almost certainly for the special counsel's office to ask her to refute to recuse herself from this case, given her prior rulings with the special master. And if she doesn't recuse herself and they litigate this to the circuit, to the 11th circuit, then that might add several more months, even if you do a kind of a red line emergency speedy docket here, which could put you right up against the election. Right. Jump, you know, from the frying pan to the fire, they got out of the (laughs) venue problem, but maybe they now have this. You know, I'd like to broaden the focus and kind of have a closing uh, thought, starting with you, Congresswoman, because of all the work you did at a time when people thought anyway the DOJ was being slow. Do you see the indictment in any way as a vindication of the January 6th committee work, or will that only come, in your view, with charges that grow out of you know, the big lie and insurrection that January 6th charges themselves. No, I mean, this indictment has nothing whatsoever to do with the January 6th committee and our work. 
We were entirely focused on uh, the insurrection and the effort to overturn the election and basically to effectuate a coup d'etat. And that, I believe, is still being investigated by the department. It should be. We recommended several criminal referrals uh, to the department. We did so because we thought the evidence was ample to convict. But this is completely different. It has nothing to do with that. And I, I would be disappointed if they do not bring their investigation to a conclusion. In the end, they've got to make the decision on whether they should or should not proceed. But they need to complete that investigation and make that decision because that was an effort basically to overturn the government. And it's very, very serious. Fair enough. And there's a lot of indications, especially most recently, the kind of thunderbolt, what would be the leading news on another week, that Mark Meadows has testified on January 6th itself. All right. The congresswoman thought of this, you know, her first reaction was kind of sadness. I wonder if Ali or Hugo, you know, either of you have personal reflections from having covered him so closely. That was my first reaction as well, is that This is a solemn day for this country because it sets this precedent that no matter what, we are now a country that has to indict its former presidents. That is now a precedent that is set. That will have reverberations for decades and decades. And, you know, I started covering Trump in 2015, two weeks after he came down the escalator. If I look at the arc of the coverage that I thought I would have on that story, I did not think I would see one impeachment, let alone two. I did not think that I would see one January 6th, let alone at all. I didn't think that we would be here in a place where we're on indictment number two and there's still likely more to come. So I'm shocked, but we've seen enough now to know that this this is stunning, but not shocking, maybe. It's time now for our sidebar feature, in which we ask a well-known person to explain an important legal concept in the news. The topic today is extradition. Often, someone will be charged with a crime in a state where they are not living at the time. Typically, the home state will transport or extradite the defendant to the charging state. But does a state have the right to refuse to extradite an individual who's been charged with a crime in another state? That topic has arisen in the wake of aggressive anti-abortion legislation seeking to criminalize out-of-state conduct by state residents. To explain extradition and whether it may be refused, I am pleased to introduce Kevin Dorff. Kevin is an actor and comedian best known for his work as a writer and sketch performer on Late Night with Conan O'Brien and The Tonight Show with Conan O'Brien the former of which he won an Emmy for in 2007. He's also been seen on TV shows 30 Rock, Parks and Recreation, The Office, and Brooklyn Nine-Nine. What a list. Kevin made his big screen debut as Bill O'Reilly in the 2019 film Bombshell. So I give you now Kevin Dorff explaining extradition. When must a state extradite a defendant? In the wake of the Supreme Court's ruling in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, which overruled Roe v. Wade and held there is no constitutional right to abortion, anti-abortion states have introduced an avalanche of bills seeking to criminalize abortions performed in other states where the procedure remains legal. 
These bills impose civil and criminal penalties on individuals who assist state residents in obtaining an abortion wherever the procedure is performed or the drugs prescribed. Abortion supportive states are fighting back and passing legislation seeking to protect their citizens from liability for performing and assisting abortions where they are legal. Some of these go so far as to declare that the states will refuse to extradite individuals who are charged with providing or accessing reproductive care in the abortion supportive states. But can they do that? Does a state have the right to refuse to extradite an individual who has been charged with a crime in another state? To begin, Article 4, Section 2 of the Constitution, known as the Interstate Extradition or Rendition Clause, states that a person charged in any state with treason, felony, or other crime who shall flee from justice and be found in another state shall on demand of the executive authority of the state from which he fled be delivered up to be removed to the state having jurisdiction of the crime. Moreover, in 1793, the Second Congress passed a statute now codified as the Extradition Act that requires the governor of each state to deliver fugitives found in their state, if another state makes a lawful demand that they do so. This procedure was tested in 1861 in Kentucky versus Denison. In that case, Willis Lago helped an enslaved woman escape Kentucky to the free state of Ohio. Kentucky demanded that Ohio arrest and extradite Mr. Lago for the crime of assisting her escape. The governor of Ohio refused because those acts were not crimes in Ohio. The Supreme Court first concluded that the Constitution and federal law require the extradition of citizens facing valid warrants, even if what they are charged with is not a crime in the refuge state. However, the court also held that the federal government had no power to force states to comply with the extradition clause. It was merely a moral duty on their part. That was the law for over 100 years. States had a moral duty to extradite individuals, but the federal government had no power to compel them to do so. In 1987, the Supreme Court reconsidered Denison in a case called Puerto Rico v. Branstad. In this case, an Iowa citizen visiting Puerto Rico killed a woman and injured her husband during what appeared to be a road rage incident. After posting bail, the defendant returned to Iowa and fought extradition on the grounds that a white man could not receive a fair trial in Puerto Rico. The governor of Puerto Rico sued in federal court to force Iowa to extradite the defendant. The Supreme Court now reversed Kentucky versus Denison, finding that the decision reflected a different pre-Civil War relationship between the federal and state governments. Now, the federal government was empowered to force states to extradite fugitives subject to a valid request. So does all this mean that a state could be compelled to turn over its citizens if they assist or perform abortions for citizens of anti-abortion states? Not necessarily. Abortion-supportive states make the argument that the extradition clause applies only to fugitives who shall flee from justice and be found in another state. That language, as interpreted by the Supreme Court, most likely includes only individuals who commit a crime in another state and flee, not those who take legal acts in their own state which constitute crimes in another state. A state may choose to extradite such people, but the Constitution doesn't require that it do so. For Talking Feds, I'm Kevin Dorff. Thank you very much, Kevin Dorff, for explaining extradition and whether and when it might be refused. Kevin's most recent project, White House Plumbers, is now streaming on HBO. And now, a word from our sponsor, the American Civil Liberties Union. Hi, I'm Maribel Hernandez-Rivera a Deputy National Political Director at the ACLU. The promise of America is to serve as a beacon of hope and freedom for people fleeing persecution, 
violence, war, and human rights violations around the world. Yet, the Biden administration has chosen to replicate harmful and illegal Trump-era policies that ban people from seeking asylum at the southern border, betraying the ideals that represent the best of our country. Biden's asylum ban is causing needless suffering and placing people at grave risk. The ACLU successfully sued the Trump administration when it implemented asylum bans. And now we're suing the Biden administration over their own ban. For more on how the ACLU is fighting for the rights of asylum seekers, go to ACLU.org. All right, it is now time for a spirited debate brought to you by our sponsor, Total Wine and More. Each episode, you'll be hearing an expert talk about the pros and cons of a particular issue in the world of wine, spirit, and beverages. Thank you, Harry. Today's spirited debate asks, to decant or not to decant? That is the question. And the short answer is yes. But when should you decant? First off, what is it? Decanting is the process of slowly pouring liquid, in this case wine, from one container to another without disturbing the sediment at the bottom. It is important to separate the wine from the sediment if there is a lot of it because the sediment can dampen the aromas and flavors in your glass. Decanting wine also helps the wine to aerate, which is the process of introducing oxygen to the liquid. No doubt you've heard or even said the phrase, let the wine breathe. Well, that's what decanting does best, allowing those aromas to expand while making the wine more flavorful and balanced. And it's never a bad idea to decant a young, bold wine. In fact, at Total Wine & More, our guides recommend allowing an hour or two for the process to work best. This is not advisable for mature wines that just need to be separated from their sediment. Leaving a mature wine in a decanter for too long could cause flavors to become muted from too much aeration. Not only young reds and whites can benefit from decanting. Despite some controversies over the practice, decanting some sparkling wines like Maillie Brut Champagne can expand their flavors. Remember to taste your wine while decanting to be sure it is not left aerating for too long. And don't forget, the younger and more closed the flavors are when you open the wine, the more it will benefit from the decanting process. Even a few seconds of aeration or a quick swirl in your glass will do wonders to your favorite wine from Total Wine & More. However, the best rule of thumb is, whenever you can, decant. Taste and enjoy when it feels best to you. It's personal. Cheers. Thanks to our friends at Total Wine & More for today's A Spirited Debate. Let's move to the latest craziness in the House of Representatives. I wanted to start, Ali, with your excellent reporting you began a small block of conservative bomb throwers is holding the floor of the House of Representatives hostage, forcing GOP leaders to cancel votes for the rest of the week. It was the first time, I think, in over 20 years that a so-called rule of consideration failed to pass. Can you just take us through what's happening and what lies behind this latest sort of hardliner tantrum? Yeah, this was a pretty weird week, especially because this is Republicans effectively tanking their own party's messaging bill, 
The whole point of this week was to protect and save, in the words of the Republican majority, gas stoves. And then there we are on Monday as they're trying to move on this thing called the rule, which may sound like it doesn't matter, but you can't move on to any vote until you pass the rule. They tanked the rule. Leadership had no idea that this was coming. And then it made it so that for the rest of the week, these 11 hardliners were able to paralyze the floor of the House of Representatives. Now, this might not be a big deal because protecting and saving gas stoves doesn't sound like the most pressing of issues. But where it becomes difficult is if this is a tactic that they start to use going forward. Many of us after the debt ceiling thought, is this a moment for the motion to vacate? And of course, that's sort of the sexiest, if Congress can be sexy, but the sexiest of ways that hardliners can get back at McCarthy. Turns out, motion to vacate might not be on the table, but this is a way that they can make McCarthy's life very difficult. And I have to tell you, there were points where this week I was asking these hardliners, people who were talking to them, hey, do you even know what the ask is here? And not many people are sure what the ask is. In fact, I think, and many of my sources on the Republican side have agreed with me, the chaos might just be the point. Yeah, I mean, McCarthy himself said, I don't even know what they want, which seemed to be part of the theme as well in the whole debt crisis situation. Congresswoman, it sounds like they're cutting off both legs to spite McCarthy. How crazy is this? How unusual is it? And how effective can it be? This has never happened while I've served in the House, and I, I've not been told of another time when this has ever been used. So it may be a first in the nation. I don't really know. I voted and left the floor. But some of my colleagues who were hanging around, they had the sense that it wasn't planned, that a couple of right-wingers were just ticked off and decided to vote no because they were mad. And then some other people said, well, why are you voting no? Because I'm mad. So they voted no also because they were mad. So the rule went down. And I think uh, Mr. Clyde had an issue about a really terrible bill that he wants to, to put on the floor. And I think Mr. Scalise, the majority leader, thinks they don't have the votes to pass it. So there was a dust up there. But best I can tell, they don't have an ask. Maybe <laughs> they're developing an ask. I don't know. I mean, what is teed up by the Republicans is a series of bills that don't do anything, but provide a message. There is no risk to gas stoves, but they wanted to say there was. And so they have this bill to protect gas stoves that don't need protection. And they were going to then say, you know, the crazy libs were keeping you from frying your eggs. <laughs> so that's now taken off the table. I don't know. I mean, we're going back next week. We can have the suspension votes without a rule. But I don't know whether we're going to be able to do anything else. Now, since most of what they have teed up is garbage and won't impact the country positively or negatively other than through right-wing messaging, maybe you know it's not so fatal. But there are things coming up that we do have to do. For example, the appropriations bills. And I'll note also, I'm the senior Democrat on the Science Committee, and we're moving a lot of bills that are useful and so far, all our bills have been passed unanimously. So, you know, there are some bipartisan work that would help the country that we should move. But we'll see. I don't, it's complete chaos, really. I don't know why they're doing this, and I'm not sure they know why either. I hadn't realized, but putting both of your comments together, it sounds like a near 
spontaneous conflagration the inmates just decided to take over the asylum kind of suddenly yeah and i had some reporting from someone who was aware of how this was you know quote unquote planned to the extent that it was planned and part of the reason why they were able to surprise republican leadership is because a few of them decided this just the night before i mean this was pretty spontaneously done and it does stem from the idea that they were unhappy about the debt ceiling negotiations and the way that those went down but i think what's striking about that is None of us were ever under the assumption that Freedom Caucus members were going to willfully vote for a debt ceiling hike that was bipartisanly negotiated between the White House and their leadership. That was just never going to happen. I do think the other consequence of this is we've started to see a very public spilling out of the friction between Speaker Kevin McCarthy and his number two, Steve Scalise. It has always been a pretty tense relationship, but it's been behind the scenes. Now we're watching both of them, McCarthy sort of casting aspersion at Scalise saying, well, the reason that this rule fell down is because this was Scalise's job to make sure that we had the votes for it. And then Scalise doing an interview and participating in the idea that this might be something that McCarthy made harder because of the deals he made to get the speakership. And Scalise says at one point in that interview, well, I wasn't in those deals, so I don't know what he agreed to. You're watching them play this very subtle game, but it's becoming less subtle and much more public. That's going to be a problem, too, for Republicans, because not only is McCarthy battling against his rightmost flank, which we always knew he was going to have to do, but now the call is coming from inside the House, the inside the leadership house. That could be a problem, too. In part, it seems to have the subtlety of like third graders in a sandbox all of a sudden throwing sand at everyone. What they've not permitted to go through is a simple resolution that says we're going to look at bills in such and such an order. McCarthy didn't seem all that all that positive even after the votes were canceled. You know, we'll come back on Monday and try to work for the American public. Any sense of how, especially with no real ask, what move can he even make to try to break the the logjam since it seems premised by just the mere fact of the tantrum and some kind of reprisal for the, the debt crisis? I think, you know, they may be developing an ask, even though this, I don't think, was really planned. And when they were approached by leadership, the net effect was for two more Republicans to vote against the rule. But there's some discussion that they hated the a debt ceiling bill, and uh, they want further reductions during the appropriations process. And as uh, McCarthy pointed out, and this is nothing new, what was said as the spending was really a ceiling, not a floor. However, a majority of the Republican members of the House voted for that debt ceiling, even though more Democrats and than Republicans voted for it. So the vast majority of the House has bought into that deal. And I happen to know there are a number of Republicans who have interest in uh, some of the appropriations, you know, not just defense, but certain other projects, NASA and other things that they think are important to be funded. And uh, I don't know that the Republican conference is going to be on board to do the kind of slashing that they are insisting on. In fact, when we called out in the science committee, what would be the impact of the cuts from the first bill that was passed, the McCarthy bill, about a 22% cut, but would just devastate NASA. Well, NASA's had bipartisan support. 
And one of the Republican members said, well, we didn't intend to cut NASA. Well, you know, that was what the vote was. But the comment was revealing. There's a lot of things in there where there's bipartisan support. We've got the farm bill coming up. There's bipartisan support for that. Transportation bills, the space program. Most of the Republican members don't want to eliminate all of that. You know, that's a good point. On the one hand, you could just sit back and buy popcorn and watch the dysfunction. But you're right. There are bills that bipartisan, but certainly Democrats care about that in the current logjam seem like they won't come to the floor. Do the Democrats just do nothing and wait for McCarthy to get the House in order? There's nothing else we can do. I mean, we are in the minority and the schedule and the agenda is set by the majority. So we don't have the legal capacity to do anything other than look. If uh, McCarthy wants my advice, I'd be happy to give it to him. But so far, <laughs> you know, I'm still waiting for that ask. You really don't have the capacity to set the agenda. It's up to them. Here's what I wonder is there's no ask right now, but one of the things I heard could have been an ask was like, not just Andrew Clyde getting a vote on the bill that he wanted, which by the way, I, I understand the whip count is that it, it wouldn't pass. And that's part of why they didn't bring it to the floor as the Congresswoman said. But then the next thing I heard could have been an ask was no, we don't just want it to be a vote. We want it to be the next vote. So we're watching that, but here's where that becomes an instance where maybe the conference gets something that they actually want to vote on so badly. I'm thinking of the push that they have from within the conference to impeach several members of the Biden administration. This actually could have happened and come to a fore a lot sooner if we had seen on the oversight committee, James Comer push through his committee, the contempt referral that he wanted to push against the head of the FBI, Chris Ray. Ultimately, that was off the table because Comer says he kind of got what he wanted, at least in this instance, it could be on the table later, but that could have been a pivot point. It wasn't. But what happens when they actually have something that's not gas stoves, but that's really good red meat for their base, that they want that message no matter what? I also know they're trying to move on an abortion bill. They're trying to move on a tax bill. All of those are messaging bills that are quite important to them. What happens then? Does that shake this loose just innately because those are things they want more than the chaos? I don't know, but that's one option. I mean, they're the non-governing party, right? So they, They're anti-government, and if there is no government, that suits them just fine. There is the possibility, I mean, I haven't talked to our leadership about it, but we did get the rule passed for the debt ceiling vote with Democratic votes. And if it were an underlying bill that was essential to the country, not some messaging garbage, we could potentially do that again, although there's been no discussion of that. But I think in the Judiciary Committee, we changed the title. They changed the title of the hearing we had earlier this week to have the laws been faithfully executed by the Secretary of Homeland Security. There's clearly teeing up an impeachment of the secretary, which is ridiculous, but that doesn't really matter to them. So that may be, you know, something that they could get the right wing uh, to do. And certainly some of the members of the Judiciary Committee on the Republican side include some of the no's of Matt Gates, Chip Roy, Biggs, and others who are part of the uh, insurgents on the right. 
I mean, if you talk to any of the Freedom Caucus members, they will tell you that laundry list of targets in the Biden administration that they want to impeach. You know, start with Marjorie Taylor Greene. She wants to impeach Secretary Mayorkas. She wants to impeach the Attorney General. She wants to impeach Biden. In fact, she has submitted articles of impeachment against Biden. They've gone nowhere, but she has still done so because it's the kind of thing that appeals to her base. It appeals to the kind of far-right MAGA base. And she can also fundraise off that. And just like Trump, she is very effective at doing that. I think a lot of the impeachment chatter, though, remains chatter because there isn't enough support in the wider Republican conference to do stuff like that. I mean, even people like Jim Jordan, who would be quite content in subpoenaing Department of Justice officials because he wants to gain more insight into investigations or because he wants to hold up kind of a pre-trial schedule for Trump, has not really been enthusiastic about supporting impeachment efforts. And I think, you know, my colleagues on the Hill have a better sense than I do of where everyone stands. But I think at the moment, it's a lot of talk and maybe not much action. So you've both mentioned this impeachment possibility as being the demand. So Mayorkas, potentially, at Homeland Security, and they've spoken about Garland before. You know, it's obviously something that would be done for theatrics only. Let me bring it back to McCarthy, because he seemed to emerge slightly stronger from the debt crisis. This kind of demonstration makes McCarthy's job less secure. You know, where where is he relative to a month ago? I don't really know. But if they, through these actions prevent the speaker from taking any action, obviously that does undercut his position. Whether there will be a motion to vacate, I don't know. I mean, Biggs and others, I think uh, Ken Buck said there would be right after the vote. Buck is also a member of the Judiciary Committee. So that, that could happen. And if that's put on the floor, it will probably pass. The way they would go about trying to remove him is through a motion to vacate, yes? And if it passes, then the leadership is empty. And then you go through the process of, you know, choosing a new speaker. We might have another 15 votorama for McCarthy beginning. The endless loop could once again occur. So we'll see. Because you can't replace him with nobody, right? Which is sort of the reason that I feel like he's in a better position right now. If there's no speaker, various things can't happen. Now, we could still have committee work, which we couldn't in January because the speaker is the beginning of doing everything. But having appointed members to committees and the like, we could do committee work hearings and pass out bills and the like. It's just that we would not be able to bring anything forward. The fact that they're not doing anything anyhow does make this more palatable. But ultimately, we do need to do some things to keep the government open and the democracy working. So there's that long-term threat. Or at least look like they're doing something. Al, you were suggesting that by your calculation, maybe McCarthy's in a stronger position than the conventional wisdom has held. Yeah, I think that's where I'm at now, only because, A, this week was a reminder of just how much he's suffering as speaker. I mean, like, this is not an easy job. I can't imagine why he worked so hard to get it in the first place, knowing what it was always going to be. But now watching the way that his own conference is treating him and actively celebrating the fact that they've hamstrung him in a pretty embarrassing fashion on the floor, completely making it impossible to do any work this week, 
it kind of makes it hard for me to see anyone else raising their hand saying, yeah, I definitely want that job. But putting even that aside, I think there was a recognition that I heard from both Republican sources, those who don't like McCarthy and those who do. But I also heard this from Democratic sources here on the Hill who did not anticipate the gamesmanship that he brought in being able to pass that first debt ceiling bill through his conference. He was haggling to the very last minute. People were shuttling in and out of his office. I was shuttling with them. And we were reporting this on NBC at the time as why would McCarthy do this? Because he'll never be able to pass what will ultimately be passable through the same version of his conference. But this really did mean that the White House had to come to the table and abandon the position of we're a clean debt ceiling no matter what. And I do think that McCarthy felt he was underestimated. But frankly, I think that I heard from Democrats who said, yeah, he was. And it worked to the White House's detriment. Let me add a a different issue in this calculation. Biden ate his lunch on (laughs) on the debt ceiling. You know, they were upset about people on food stamps. And after this, there'll be more people on food stamps than there were before. Uh, They were concerned about TANF. TANF has actually been strengthened in California and across the United States. The spending that is authorized is probably what we would have gotten in the regular appropriations process anyhow, maybe more. So the right wing that's screaming that it wasn't what they wanted, I understand, because it really is everything that Biden could have hoped for, he got. I think you're right, lemons out of lemonade. Right. I mean, and maybe they, you know, he just completely out negotiated him. Though, again, McCarthy doesn't really hasn't seemed to be the most principled of speakers. And I don't think it was till near the end when they were screaming up and down that people realized, you know, they really don't have a move to make now as long as he gets enough Democrats and centrist votes. So it's funny I think it's always been a question, given the circumstances under which he took the job, is this idea to go six months and become a uh, well-paid lobbyist. It's not clear. But on the one hand, the headaches seem to redouble every week for him. (laughs) But oddly, it seems less precarious than at least the punditry was thinking a few months ago. Because any member of the Congress can make a motion to vacate, I could do that. Mm -hmm. One can do that. Once Is that, that news? I'm not planning to. But anyone who does that, he's in trouble because I don't think Matt Gates and all these people that are flipping out are going to vote for him again. And well, Matt didn't to begin with, but certainly Ken Buck and others. I mean, once that motion is made, I think he's got big trouble. I will say I've heard, and I wonder if you've heard this too, Congresswoman, from friends of yours within your own party, but I've spoken to people who say that if the motion to vacate is put forward, they've already had some conversations that like, it's better not to throw this entire institution into flux. And that if this comes from the ultra right, further into flux, moderate. Yes, there could be some moderate Democrats who step in and say, all right, we'll help McCarthy on this one. Because a again, I don't know who the alternative is. And B, it's better to have mild chaos as opposed to outright chaos. Well, I've not heard that, but I will say we hope to take the House and, you know, if Democrats vote for McCarthy to be Speaker, they might as well retire now because they will not be reelected. And by the way, this is a a field, but we didn't cover this week the Supreme Court's voting rights decision. But it's possible that it gives the Dems a net four to seven seats 
in the razor tight margins that uh, are in the house could be pivotal. We only have a minute for our final feature of Talking Five. Maybe you'll think this a little too jocular for the solemn occasion, but here's our question, and each of us has to answer in five words or fewer. What will Trump do Tuesday night uh, after he appears to mark the indictment at Mar-a-Lago? What will be happening in Mar-a-Lago, five words or fewer? Anyone? Send emails to raise money. (laughs) And uh, that's a perfect five. Ali? Truth social. That's it. <laughs> I don't know what's happening in Mar-a-Lago, but the, my five words would be end of the road. I'll say guests get free classified document. We are out of time. Thank you very much to Hugo, Ali, and Congresswoman Lofgren. And thank you very much, listeners, for tuning in to Talking Feds. If you like what you've heard, Please tell a friend to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or wherever they get their podcasts. And please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can also now subscribe to us on YouTube, where we post daily video content breaking down legal developments in the news. You can follow us on Twitter, at TalkingFedsPod, and you can look to see our latest offerings on Patreon, where we post bonus discussions with national experts about special topics exclusively for supporters. This week, we posted a long conversation with Pittsburgh courts reporter Paula Ward about the ongoing death penalty trial against Tree of Life synagogue shooter Robert Bowers. Talking Feds is a completely independent production, so if you like the work we do and the spirit moves you to support the show, joining our Patreon is the best way to do it. Submit your questions to questions at TalkingFeds.com, whether it's for Talking 5 or general questions about the inner workings of the legal system for our sidebar segments. Thanks for tuning in. And don't worry. As long as you need answers, the Feds will keep talking. Talking Feds is produced by Olivia Henriksen. Sound engineering by Matt McArdle. Rosie Don Griffin and David Lieberman are our contributing writers. Production assistance by Rhea Cohen-Gilbert, Emma Maynard, and Kalena Tano. Thank you to Kevin Dorff for explaining extradition. Our gratitude, as always, to the amazing Philip Glass, who graciously lets us use his music. Talking Feds is a production of Delito LLC. I'm Harry Littman. Talk to you later.